Hello, and welcome to the Collider.com podcast. I'm Collider.com senior editor Matt Goldberg, and with me is deputy editor Adam Chitwood. Howdy, folks. This is part two of our MCU retrospective series. In our previous episode, we discussed Iron Man, The Incredible Hulk, Iron Man 2, Thor, Captain America, The First Avenger, and The Avengers. And we're doing this all to sort of lead up to Avengers Endgame. So in today's episode, part two, we'll be talking about Iron Man 3, Thor the Dark World, uh, Captain America the Winter Soldier, Guardians of the Galaxy, and Avengers Age of Ultron. So, A.K.A. most of Phase 2, except for the movie they tacked on to Phase 2. <laughs> right, yeah, exactly. The movie that was supposed to be the start of Phase 3, and they're like, ah! Or, or the movie that was supposed to be the start, yeah, the start of phase of phase three, and they're like, we don't really think Ant Man is a phase <laughs> <It> should, <laughs> should launch anything. <laughs> yeah, it's Ant-Man. but we'll get to that. we'll get to that. Yeah. Um, now, if you're listening to this, if you're a longtime listener to this podcast, you know we actually went long on Iron Man three last fall before the Predator was c- going to come out because we're big Shane Black fans. And we also feel that Iron Man 3 is kind of this weird, funky movie that really stands out in the MCU. It's a fun one to look at. I don't think it's a perfect film. I think it does have some issues. But I like its creativity. But I also understand it's kind of a lightning rod within the Marvel. Like, it's funny. Like, I put together that sort of Marvel movies ranked thing. And I guess I could do sort of like, if I wanted to handle it, quote unquote, objectively... I could like just put a poll into the field and be like, everyone rank the movies for me. And then whatever is democratically decided, God, I'm bored just talking about it. <laughs> but where would people rank Iron Man 3? Because I think some people are like, yeah, Iron Man 3, it's a lot of fun. It's weird. It's kind of on its own. And other people are like, no, it does not acknowledge the rest of the Marvel Cinematic Universe. <laughs> and so by the standards, uh, like it's weird. Like, do you judge it as its own movie or do you judge it in relation to other Marvel movies? And I think that's kind of what makes... Iron Man 3 is such this such a weird outlier. Yeah, I mean, and it was a, a hugely anticipated film. I mean, Iron Man 2 was as well, but uh, Marvel's The Avengers, you know, uh, broke the box office record for opening weekend and went on to gross like a bajillion dollars. So everyone was looking towards Iron Man 3 not only as the continuation featuring like the biggest star of the MCU but also the first movie that would acknowledge like how do these movies continue after the Avengers how are you going to answer the question why don't they just call Thor or why don't they just call Captain America and Iron Man 3 basically says we don't care <laughs> we're not addressing those questions at this time um and instead is just a really fun romp that's also kind of a PTSD story that features this uh, Tony Stark and kid buddy comedy in the middle of it that totally shouldn't work, but really does work. Um, Cause Shane Black is a master when it comes to uh, kid characters. Um, and then just completely flips convention on its head. Yeah. It's a film that doesn't really care what the audience wants. By the way, <laughs> if you hear my dog barking in the background, that just means there's a male delivery person outside Ooh. or someone is walking down the street. Just really urgent stuff that he needs to let us all know about. Now, the it thing probably about, means one of our podcast listeners who hates Iron Man 3 is listening to this right now and has decided to come to your house. <laughs> Very comforting. Thank you. Uh, no, I think with Iron Man 3, it, it really is fascinating because, like, again, if – 
if you think that the, the appeal of the Marvel Cinematic Universe is that all the films tie together, then by that metric, Iron Man 3 is kind of a failure. Like, he should call S.H.I.E.L.D. or S.H.I.E.L.D. Could, should involve itself or other Avengers should get involved. And the PTSD stuff as the excuse for why he doesn't call them isn't really played strongly enough for, like, everyone stay away. Like, if there's a dude out there who's, like, people are exploding, it's kind of supernatural, like... If you're just coming off the Avengers, you have to acknowledge the Avengers. And Iron Man 3 is like, no, you don't. (laughs) Not really. I mean, you can kind of acknowledge that it happened, but you don't have to make it a big part of your movie. And that's the thing that Shane Black is going for. What Shane Black is kind of is his trademark is he's very good at upending conventions. He's a writer that knows the rules so well that he knows how to break them. And that's an Iron Man 3 is all about breaking rules. It's all about like what you thought is important is not important and what actually is I'm going to bring to the forefront is going to work here. So, you know, by conventional rules, the the Mandarin is the villain. It has to be Ben Kingsley is the villain. He was in all the marketing. The Mandarin is is Iron Man's arch nemesis in the comics. It has to be the Mandarin. And then it's like, no, it's just an actor. <laughs> it's just a dude. It's just a weird guy named Trevor Slattery. And it's amazing. I love the Mandarin twist so much. It's so funny. It's played so well. The reveal is played so well um, because I think it allows the audience to get over the kind of like, wait, what is happening? Because there's a little bit of a there's kind of a beat as like it's revealed kind of in steps, you know, as Tony Stark is going through that mansion, because Tony Stark is also wondering, like, wait, this can't be true. This can't be real. Like, What is actually going on here? I love the way that that reveal is set up. And I love that Ben Kingsley gets to play both of these parts. And I think the film honestly gets to let you have your cake and eat it too. Like it gives you kind of a version of the Mandarin that might work. And like, it's fine throughout the first half of the movie, but then it upends that and gives you a much better version of the villain. Like, well, like that's kind of cartoon. It's a cartoonish idea and that was kind of the idea of the comics i mean the mandarin was supposed to be the villain in the first iron man uh, and john favreau got talked out of it um and it, i mean it's a tough character to adapt because it's it's kind of a caricature and it's super I, duper racist yes and i like the just the way that uh i like the way that shane black handles it here and you know i don't necessarily care about comics fidelity because if it makes for a better story, it makes for a better story. And I think here it makes for a better story. Yeah. And I think it also helps make the movie about something. Whereas that a film about, you know, what does it mean? If, if Iron Man in Iron Man two is like, I have privatized world peace, then Iron Man three is in a weird way, a kind of counterbalance to be like, well, I've privatized terrorism. (laughs) And so this notion that they're kind of moving to these other, these opposite ends of the spectrum. And like, that's really the only way you can handle it. Like you can't, really put Iron Man as part of just like the battlefield. He has to be more than that. And so his villains in turn have to kind of mirror what he is. And so by pushing sort of to the, to the margins, you get a more interesting story uh, and a more worthwhile uh, sort of character development from everyone involved. Um, I don't think all the subtext of the film works. As I've said before, it's a weird movie where veterans are the, are the henchmen. (laughs) I think that's a little weird. Um, but for the most part, it's just, it's a really fun, funky movie. I just, I really have a good time watching Iron Man three. Um, and I like that it takes bold chances that I think are also really getting away with something. I don't think Iron Man three gets made even three years after the time it came out. No, in, in, in 2016, you don't get Iron Man three. Iron Man three is a movie that's like 
where I don't even think Kevin Feige has a has a good read on how to make up like they had to start making Iron Man three pretty much right after Avengers came out. So there wasn't a lot of time to like re you know, to finesse the script or like really like they had to make that movie had to get rolling. So there wasn't yeah. time to sort of be like, well, what does a post Avengers world look like? They didn't have time to think it out. They had to keep things rolling. And so it was developed a lo- like alongside the Avengers. Exactly. And Kevin Feige's whole thing, like he's like, we want to put Tony back in the cave. Like that was his thing. And I'm like, it's a, I mean, that's an approach. Um, but it's a film that I think because the MCU hadn't firmed up quite as much and because you had Downey backing Shane Black and like Downey is like the crown jewel kind of like he's yeah like especially the, at this time exactly like he is like people like love him as Iron Man like he he has a lot of clout um in uh, to throw around and so he's backing Shane Black and so if Shane Black is like I want to make you know want to take these big swings then he had a little more latitude to do that um I think you know, if an Iron Man three were to be made in 2016, you'd get a lot more. You you'd get something far more conventional. And I think it's telling that they've never done. I mean, they still continue to play with uh, convention with the comics and kind of upending expectations and altering characters a bit. But they've never done anything as severe as they did in Iron Man three by taking a a villain who was iconic uh, and I guess is iconic and then just completely throwing it away for a joke. Right. <laughs> <laughs> I think it's telling that they never did that again. Yeah. But well, the movie made $1.2 billion. Like, I think people forget that Iron Man 3 was a massive hit. Like, yeah. box office-wise, it made so much money. It was a huge hit opening weekend, continuing to make a ton of money. That was, like, if Avengers was the movie that really, like, proved that this uh, idea could work and, like, was a big box office success – Iron Man 3 proved that uh, it wasn't a fluke. Like Marvel Studios was now on this track record of making movies that could conceivably break a billion dollars more than once. Right. Yeah. It's the brand had sort of established itself. Yeah. It's still one of the highest grossing Marvel movies to this day. Yeah. I think it's like number three or something like that. And I got to say, I think the appeal of Downey, like I think if they did make an Iron Man 4, I don't think it would be as daring as as Iron Man 3, but I think it would make a ridiculous amount of money because people like him as Iron Man so much. And I remember that was the big question when Iron Man 3 came out. Is like, is there an Iron Man 4? What's going on with Downey's contract? And uh, his contract, because his contract was due to, I think it ended with Iron Man 3, possibly. It did. It did, because yeah. they had to renegotiate it for Civil War. Yeah, so they renegotiated, like, originally he upped to continue in three Avengers movies. So that would be Age of Ultron, uh, Infinity War, and Endgame, I believe. And then they had to renegotiate it to make it work for him in Civil War. And and for home and for Homecoming. Oh, that's right, that's right. Yeah, the Homecoming was also part of the renegotiation, I think. I think he renegotiated years. But at the time that Iron Man 3 came out, everyone was wondering, is there going to be an Iron Man 4? And, like, they were kind of playing coy with it. Like, you know, maybe the end of Iron Man 3 is the end of Iron Man. Like, this is kind of the end of that. And subsequently, Downey signed up for more Avengers movies, but he never did sign up specifically for more Iron Man movies. Right. Which, again, also, play, like, the thing is, is that playing Iron Man in a in an, in an ensemble movie is a lot easier for Downey than playing yeah. it. in Because, like, Iron Man 3 is kind of like a, like a physically strenuous role for Downey. 
Like, he still has to, like, jump. Like, there is the suit aspect of it, but, like, the whole Malibu thing, like, he's in those shots. Like, he's being jerked around a little bit. Like, he is, there is mm-hmm. some physical exertion on his part, as opposed to an Avengers movie where it's like, uh, I'm just going to, you know, I'm going to be in pajamas and you guys can can do all this stuff. All the, you can do all my stunts in, in post. Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. Um, so then we move on to the much maligned, uh, Thor, the dark world. (laughs) Yes. Which had a, uh, I mean, it had a tortured development process as well. (laughs) People forget, but that one, so, and speaking about, so Iron Man three, uh, John Favreau did not come back. He signed on to direct magic kingdom instead for Disney, a movie that never actually happened. Um, which was supposed to be about the magic kingdom theme park kind of coming alive. Uh, Thor, the dark world, Kenneth Branagh had said he wanted to come back, but then was kind of put off by the fact that Marvel wanted to move very quickly, basically rushing a script to get it in theaters. So like we talk now about like DC and Warner brothers messing up, but Marvel was doing the same thing at this point in time because they were trying to shore up, um, their, uh, slate. They were trying to make sure they had a, a, you know, a lot of movies coming out. And so they first hired Brian Kirk to direct, who directed some episodes of game of Thrones. Uh, he left, I think over creative differences. I don't really know. Um, but, uh, after that, most tellingly, <laughs> Patty Jenkins, uh, was in talks to direct very serious talks to direct ultimately walked away uh, she eventually went on to direct Wonder Woman, obviously, and has said that she walked away from Thor because it became clear that the movie Marvel wanted to make was not the movie she wanted to make, and she knew well enough to know that Marvel was going to get its way. So then, eventually, they come down to Alan Taylor, who had also directed Game of Thrones. And also, Patty Jenkins, I mean, she had directed Monster, but she was most known, or not most known, but at that point, um, she had just come off directing the pilot for The Killing, the AMC TV series. So very clearly, Marvel was looking at TV directors for for Thor 2. Um, I don't know if that was them being cheap or what, but that's what they went with. And uh, Alan Taylor came on to direct. Yeah. Of- and if I if I recall correctly, uh, Natalie Portman was very much backing Patty Jenkins. And then when yes. Patty Jenkins left, it kind of left a sour taste in Natalie Portman's uh, mouth over the Marvel franchise. Yeah. The general thinking was that uh, Natalie Portman was not too happy that she had to stick it out and continue on with this movie because she was really lobbying for Patty Jenkins. And when that went south, she wasn't super happy about it. Also, it's not like the Jane Foster character gets rich, interesting mythology. Yeah. I mean, they don't wait. I don't think they waste her in this movie, but at the same time, it's hard to be like, the movie's called Thor, (laughs) you know, (laughs) and you're Natalie Portman, (laughs) you're Oscar winner, Natalie Portman. And you've like been a critically acclaimed actor since you were a teenager. So, um, yeah, the thing about Thor The Dark World that I've always kind of maintained is that the first half is super fucking boring, and then it gets fun once Loki breaks out of prison. <laughs> <laughs> because the core of the film, like, the, the you really have this film that thinks the relationship between Thor and Jane is what's compelling, but it's not. It ne- They never sell it, and I don't think it's... Part of it is I don't think Hemsworth and Portman have amazing chemistry. I think... You they don't could, have chemistry at all. I mean, you could buy you them at no, because you can buy that they like want to make out <laughs> that the characters yeah. want to make out, but I don't buy it as like a love story. Like there are certain char- like in Captain America: The First Avenger, I buy it that Steve Rogers and uh, Peggy Carter love each other. 
Like, by yeah. the end of that movie, I buy that love story, and I feel like something tragic has been lost. Whereas at the end of Thor, I'm like, I feel that this has, a much, has as much connection as two people who had a hot spring break with each other. <laughs> like, I don't really feel like they've been on a journey. They just like each other's company, which is different. Um, and so Thor, by trying to convince us that this is some great love story, and, like, Thor, like, passionately cares about Jane Foster... It, I, I never really buy it, and it just feels like, you know, and on top of that, you have, like, Malkith, who's a boring-ass villain. Malekith, get his name right, come on. <laughs> no, no one cares. <laughs> Some know, respect even Christopher Christ- Eccleston doesn't care, and he was in the role. <laughs> yeah, he hates this movie. <laughs> he hates this movie, and I don't fucking blame him. Um, but it's, it's boring, and then once Loki breaks out of prison, um, the film has energy again because the relationship between Thor and Loki really crackles. It really yeah. has energy to it. And even when Loki, you know, dies, quote unquote, the film still feels fun. And I think that's a, a, a that's a kind of, I think all those changes are by virtue of the fact that Joss Whedon did uncredited rewrites on Thor The Dark World and yeah. kind of gave it a little more pop, a little more fun. And... I think also like the big set piece is really fun. like the fact that they're fighting in between dimensions and kind of floating all around the city is something that could really only happen in a Thor movie. And I think that makes it unique and interesting and fun. But at the end of the day, it's a film that's just saddled with a lot of issues. It's an ugly movie. It's not particular. Like it has, it, it has a lot of momentum problems. Um, it's the start of, Oh no, the actually no, it's the continuation of the big thing is falling out of the sky. <laughs> mm-hmm. And then like he defeats the the villain by throwing javelins at him. Like it's not <laughs> <laughs> science javelins. Like that's what wins the day. So it's not really a great picture. It's one of those where again I'm with it because I like the characters and I especially like Chris Hemsworth as Thor and Tom Hiddleston as Loki. But it's one of those MCU movies where I'm like, I have no intention of ever owning this film unless I somehow come into possession of like the the, the Marvel Ultimate box set or something. Yeah, it's not unwatchable. It has it's not unwatchable. <laughs> um, it had its moments, as you said. I think that uh, uh, the Thor and Loki stuff is a lot of fun. I think there's even a, a, some fun stuff between Thor and Jane, um, and especially stuff with Kat Dennings. I think it's a lot of fun. I think I think the the film was kind of messed up from the word go because the whole approach was like let's make a really gritty boots on the bra- boots on the ground Thor movie, which I think is just the wrong direction for this character, uh, especially in this franchise in the Marvel Cinematic Universe franchise. And we saw later with Taika Waititi going in the completely opposite direction. Um, that really clicked. I think this just, even aesthetically, this just does not click. It doesn't work. It doesn't fit. doesn't make any sense. And it's boring. Like, Thor, as a god character, is kind of boring. And then when you make him self-important and super serious by saddling him with all this grounded, gritty drama nonsense, it just becomes uh, kind of a snooze. Um but I do really enjoy that third act uh, set piece. I love the interdimensional shuffle. Uh, I think that's really inspired and really fun. Um, and Alan Taylor did say that like he essentially was l- left alone to shoot the movie he wanted to shoot. But in post-production, like everything was changed and the movie was essentially taken away from him. Because, um, I mean, Marvel famously does extensive reshoots in all of their films. And in this one, I guess they added a lot more Loki because – you know, they realize that everybody loves Loki. Uh, so yeah, it's, uh, 
not one of their best. It really isn't. It's it's kind of forgettable. Um, I also don't, I don't know what the arc for Thor is in this movie. Like I couldn't tell you. Like I guess it's sort of like he he's supposed to rule, and then he decides I don't want to rule. I'd be happier just being on my own. I guess that's the arc. It's not very satisfying. Yeah, maybe. I mean, yeah. Th- I mean, this is. I think notably, this is the movie that everyone involved with Marvel dunks on. Like, it's the one they all feel comfortable saying that movie was bad. <laughs> they should get a little more comfortable saying that about Iron Man too. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Uh, uh, yeah. Yeah. Not so much. So now we're about to lose all of our listeners. Are you ready? Are you excited? <laughs> Are you ready for everyone to hate us even more than they already uh, do? Yeah, here we go. Captain America, The Winter Soldier. A film that you love. <laughs> <laughs> I really don't like this movie. <laughs> Please donate me, people. It's, tell I mean, tell it's the fun. people why you... Okay, here's the thing. Okay, so Captain America, The Winter Soldier. I I actually like this movie a lot. I hate the conversation around it, which is not really the film's fault. <laughs> Yeah, it's really more the fault of the Russos and Kevin Feige, and then sort of the critical consensus that followed what they were saying. So I'm going to tell I'm going to tell you all a little bit sort of the timeline of this. And the timeline was is that the Russos do this thing where to, before I dig into the Russos, I do want to say I think they're very capable journeyman directors. Um, I think they are thoughtful about the way they can compose their shots and like the way they direct, but they are ultimately TV directors. And I think that makes them well suited for the MCU, but I also don't see them as like auteurs, even though they like got, they cut their teeth being mentored by Steven Soderbergh. Like they're not like dumb guys by any stretch, but what irritates me is when they do a Marvel movie and they're like, these were our influences. And then they cite these really like classic films. And then you're like, really? That's what, really? And so when it came to the Winter Soldier, they're like, yeah, like Three Days of the Condor and, you know, those 70s conspiracy thrillers. That was Parallax our, view. Yeah, those were our touchstones. And I'm like, did you ever actually watch those movies? Because those movies are huge bummers that are expressing America's disillusionment following Watergate. Like, those are what those movies are about. And they really let you, like, you don't walk out of Three Days of the Condor feeling good about America. Um... So it's one thing to be like, look, Robert Redford of Three Days of the Condor is also in our movie. But that doesn't mean that you've made a movie in the vein of a 70s conspiracy thriller. That's just not it. And I think just because The Winter Soldier raises some interesting questions about privacy and what does it mean to do the right thing and, you know, security versus, you know, surveillance, uh, surveillance. I think even though it, it, it has something on its mind... I think at the end of the day, the film works best just by digging further into who Captain America is as a character and how to make him work in a modern context. I think that's where the film shines. I think everything else around it where it's like it's it really is a 70s conspiracy thriller is bullshit and it's trying to make the film into into something that it's not. And I think it detracts from appreciating the film on its own merits. Yeah, I wish they would have just said like we made a we wanted to make a kick-ass action movie, which is essentially what they made. Like it's, you know, it's John Wick, it's Taken, it's that kind of like gritty aesthetic, modern aesthetic, a story that isn't like super duper serious, it's pretty heightened. Um and then just a lot of shaky cam and action and stuff. And and yes, the action is impressive in this movie. It was directed by Chad Stahelski and uh David Leach who directed 
the John Wick movies and Deadpool. Like they were the second unit directors on the Winter Soldier and on Captain America: Civil War. They're the ones who kind of spearheaded those those uh, set pieces. So like the Winter Soldier fighting Captain America in this movie, like that's pretty much Stahelski and Leech. Um, and it's fine, but that's just, I mean, admittedly, I mean, if you listen to this podcast, that's not really my bag. The, like those kinds of action movies, they're fine. They're not my favorite thing in the world. Everyone kind of has their own niche, their own kind of thing. Um, so I think that's part of the reason why this movie just doesn't really do it for me. I think it's fine. I do actually like the interplay between Steve Rogers and Natasha Romanoff. I think that we get to learn a lot, a lot more about their characters and who they are as people through those scenes. And those are the scenes that I like in this movie where it's just kind of quiet and they're just kind of like talking with each other. Um, you know, Anthony Mackie's Falcon is fine, I guess. The the Nick Fury stuff. I do really like the action sequence with Nick Fury being ambushed in his car. I think that's a really well-composed and really kind of terrifying action set piece. Well, and I, one of the things I do like about the action set pieces is I feel that the, the, they carry subtext with them, which is – you know, when Nick Fury is ambushed, he's ambushed by people dressed as cops and SWAT members, and which just tells you that your enemies are hiding in plain sight. Yeah. Or when Captain America is attacked in the elevator, it's that people are clo- are literally closing in around him, trying to trap him. Like, I like that the, the action scenes actually do have something to say about the plot of the film and what the characters are going through. They're not just cool things. I like that a lot. Um I just also feel, but I feel like for me, the strongest, like I said, the strongest thing is the way it handles Captain America's character, which is that he is a morally righteous guy who, even in a more complex time, um, has moral resolve and knows who he is and what he's about. And I think it make I think it's it's a really strong advancement of the character. Whereas, like I look at like Iron Man two and Thor: The Dark World, I don't really feel like those move the ball on Tony Stark or Thor. Whereas I feel like winter soldier really digs down to a new level of who captain America is. And I think is more rewarding because of it. I would agree with that in terms of number twos. I think it's probably the best on a character level, um, in the Marvel movie cinematic universe. I mean, it, it, you do, I mean, that's the big question. I mean, captain America, like the first Avenger, you know, he's in his own time in the Avengers. He's sharing the screen with six or seven other people. So this one, we finally get to know what he's like in a modern day context. And he's struggling, he's struggling to fit in. He's struggling to find his place in the world. And that's where I like his interplay with Natasha. Um, because she is, because he's the boy scout and she is so morally corrupt. I mean, maybe not morally corrupt, but she's done so many things that are morally corrupt. Well, he's a soldier and she's a spy. That's yeah. sort of the the conflict where she's willing she lives in the gray areas. He believes in sort of moral certitudes. Yeah. Yeah. I do think the the Sharon Carter stuff is kind of like I I could do without that. I like the Sharon Carter. Oh, the Sharon Carter. I was thinking the Peggy Carter. I love the Peggy Carter scene. It yeah, breaks, no, the, it breaks the whole, my like, heart everything. The Sharon Carter stuff, yeah, is whatever. The Agent 13 stuff and then Robert Redford is just either wasted or sleepy or what. I don't think he gives a good performance in this movie. <laughs> I think he's fine. Um, I think it, I do think it is a cool thing that they got, you know, Oscar winning act, although he didn't, he's never won for acting, but Oscar winner, Robert Redford to say hail Hydra yes. <laughs> in a major motion picture. <laughs> That's true. That's like, uh, that would be like getting Robert Redford to say all righty then. Like it's, it's, it's <laughs> the line that you don't expect to come out of his mouth. I'm just now imagining him saying all right, even <laughs> or talking out of his butt. You're just welcome. Classic nineties, Jim Carrey. <laughs> exactly. Song. Robert Redford does the of Jim Carrey. 
Einhorn Finkel. Finkel <laughs> Einhorn. But it's with, it's with his gravitas. Yeah, that's what I'm saying. He can't do it in the fast way that Jim Carrey does. So Einhorn Finkel. Finkel. Einhorn. <laughs> this podcast is going off the rails and I don't care. <laughs> So, uh, yeah, I just, I mean, I know Winter Soldier is, like, a lot of people that, like, consider it top-tier Marvel, and I do, too, but I also think some of the conversation around it is misguided. Yeah, I I will say uh, one thing that's really impressive about it is the visual effects on Peggy Carter. Like, I was like, oh, that's pretty good makeup with the little, like, visual effects on top of it. It was like, nope, it's all visual effects. It's entirely digital makeup, which is a recurring theme at Marvel Studios. I mean, they push the boundaries in terms of technology with each movie with visual effects. I mean, we just saw it with Captain Marvel. Um, but that de-aging stuff is, is really something to behold. And really unsettling when you think about the implications of it. If you, if you don't agree, please watch The Congress starring yeah. Robert right and then get back to me yeah um so next up you have what i think is one of the most important films in the mcu uh guardians of the galaxy yes which i think is important because not only does it take things cosmic and and it also showed the power of the marvel brand this movie was a huge hit based on a nothing comic starring like rising star chris pratt but not like an a-lister by any stretch at this point uh, a talking tree who only says I am Groot, a talking raccoon, and a green a, a green woman and a gray guy. And that's the Guardians of the Galaxy. And this movie made like $95 million on its opening weekend. <laughs> and it unabashedly has James Gunn's personality in it. Like, and it's one of those things where Marvel kind of switches back and forth between directors who have their own voice and journeyman directors who will just get the job done. And with James Gunn, they're like, I like the fact they didn't play it safe. Even though Guardians of the Galaxy, I don't think is like a crazy movie. I think two is a crazier film. Volume two is a crazier film. Mm -hmm. Um, I think that letting James Gunn be James Gunn and sort of lend his like sort of edge to this made Guardians work. I think if Guardians had been directed by like the Russos or something, it would have... Well, you would have been basically Captain Marvel. It would have really fallen flat. <laughs> like you may have liked the characters, but it like from like in terms of like the cosmic stuff, you'd be like, this is boring. And like it wouldn't have been as weird. And like, and it's just like the fact that Guardians is just sprinkled with so many just delightfully weird moments that like get dropped in and then speeds past them. And like you have to pause and be like, wait, did they just say that in like a movie that is ostensibly for children? Like when <laughs> when, when, when Star-Lord is like, if you turned on a blacklight, this place would look like a Jackson Pollock painting. <laughs> yeah. My ship is covered in semen. <laughs> like, what the- <laughs> A semen joke, which was, I mean, that was the thing when James Gunn signed on. It's like, how is he going to fit into this? Because, like, I've seen Slither. That I've is seen not... Slither and I've seen Super and they are very dark movies. Yeah. Uh, I mean, this is also a good time to talk about the Marvel Rider, Writers program they had um, during Phase 1. I yes. think, I don't know if they still had it during Phase 2. I think it was only during Phase 1. But they essentially had a room, uh, a team of people writing screenplays, just kind of seeing, like, how would this comic work? What would it look like? And Nicole Perlman was uh, one of the people in the Writers program, and she chose Guardians of the Galaxy. A lot of those scripts... Uh, never got used. They were for movies that never happened. There was a Nick Fury movie that was scripted at that time, never came to fruition. Um, a lot of them are, you know, they got heavily reworked or completely overhauled whenever the movies came around. But this is one that seemingly stuck. Um, 
And then when they hired James Gunn, he came on, he rewrote the screenplay himself. Um, but Nicole Perlman's uh, contribution was so significant, she got a, a co-writer credit. Uh, and I think I think you're right. I think Gunn's personality is all over this thing. I think that Iron Man 3 was maybe a small touchstone towards it because you let a lot of Shane Black shine through that movie. But I think we're going to look back on Guardians of the Galaxy with the same kind of – in terms of impact, in terms of what it did for the landscape, and in terms of what it did for young filmmakers growing up – I don't think it's hyperbole to say it's probably akin to Star Wars. I don't think I don't think that's that's hyperbole either. And some people are probably rolling their eyes, but like, you know, you were looking at what you see as Star Wars today is Star Wars plus forty years. Yeah. And, you know, hey, maybe in forty years Guardians isn't as influential, but I think it is. I think it will be. Because it does take that sort of it's something that younger viewers can feel they can take ownership of. Even though it was adapted from a comic, the comic was so niche that it it really is like the young viewers who saw Guardians have taken ownership of Guardians. And the way Guardians is weird and the way that it embraces outcasts and the way that it sort of brings them together. And that's not to say that like Guardians, like Guard- the first Guardians of the Galaxy fires on all cylinders. I think the film does have some issues Ronan is a boring ass villain. <laughs> yes. What a waste of Lee Pace. Um, but a recurring theme in the Marvel universe. Yes, the vil- They de- I, I wrote, gosh, after Age of Ultron that they had a villain problem, um, and they continue. They I don't know. Some some are better than others recently, but still, <laughs> you never know. Um, but I definitely feel like like I think you're right. I think Guardians not just like with the way. Um, with its characters, but just the way it looks, the way it brings you into sort of this really outlandish world. Um, and, you know, people are like, oh, how is a movie as crazy as Guardians ever going to work? And it's not that Guardians is that crazy of a movie. It's just that the surrounding landscape has become so painfully tame and safe. And no one gives a guy like James Gunn, you know, $100 million to make a movie like Guardians of the Galaxy. And so it's not so much that Guardians is like some impossible movie. It's only impossible in the way that Star Wars was impossible and that no one else was making this kind of film. Yeah, and and obviously um, Guardians of the Galaxy was influenced by Star Wars. Like to say it's as influential as Star Wars is not to say that Star Wars didn't exist. Um, but – I mean, just looking at the structure of this thing, so it is it, it's kind of a crazy character, it's kind of a crazy premise, kind of a crazy world. So the movie opens with a child on Earth and his mother is dying. That's like uh like completely the opposite. That happens of, before the Marvel logo comes it, up. It's the cold open of the film. It's this kid uh, you know, uh listening to music on his headphones and his mom is dying and is you know, he's brought in to to talk to his mom for one last time. It sets the tone that, okay, so you've got an emotional attachment to this character now. You've got some kind of emotional tether. The next scene, I think, uh if I remember correctly, is that same character as an adult. Uh, you know, he's a spaceman. He's in space. He's on this planet. It's kind of deserted. He walks into this big cave. There's kind of creatures running around, and like uh, a classic music kicks in. And then he plays. And he plays. He plays. Come and get your love. <laughs> is that what it is? That I couldn't That's, remember what song. That, it's the song. Yeah. Okay. And like, and then you just have this extended sequence of "Come and Get Your Love" as he's kind of jumping around in this cave looking for this thing. And so that's your that's your number two. And that one two punch gives you such a strong emotional connection to that character that anything else that happens in this movie, you are you you feel for that person, you empathize with that person. They are human enough 
for you to uh, really latch onto. So that characters that he cares about, you also care about. And characters he doesn't like, you also don't like. And it creates this, I just think it's so brilliantly structured that way. I think starting off with those two scenes was just kind of the perfect way to set the stage here so that as you get into the crazier stuff with like introducing a character like Drax or you know Rocket and Groot, it starts to make a little more sense because you're seeing it all through the eyes of Peter Quill. So uh, I don't know. I, I really... I really admire this film. I really enjoy this film. It's a lot of fun to watch. But just from like a pure filmmaking standpoint or a screenwriting standpoint, like just from the narrative, I think it's it's really well crafted. No, it's it's I agree. It's it's really bold. It's really well put together. The film is is a lot of fun. And even when it has to do like narrative lifts for the rest of the MCU, like, oh, the plot is built around an infinity stone and Oh, here's Thanos. Like, even when it has to do those things, the film never goes completely off the rails. Like, not in the way, not, or, I don't want to say, I don't know if off the rails is the right term, but, as we'll talk about in a bit, when Age of Ultron has to do, like, mythology building, it really, you can feel it. Like, you feel like, oh, we're doing work now. But in Guardians never loses its personality to the point where you're like, I feel like I'm watching a different movie. No, it has its own personality. I think by virtue of the fact that it it was so outlandish and it was introduced in the cosmic universe that it got to kind of stand alone a little more. And I think we do see in these phase two movies, Marvel is starting to like the wheels are turning in their head like, okay, okay, what if we do do the Infinity War saga? If we're building to there, how do we get there? What do we need to layer in? And they try some things that don't work. And you see those in even in Winter Soldier, I think, uh, and in Guardians, and then most notably in Age of Ultron, um, that they're trying to kind of start to shoehorn some stuff in to lay some track uh, so that when they get to the Infinity War storyline down the line, that it all makes sense. But I think Guardians of the Galaxy comes out largely unscathed. Yeah, no, I think I think the film just just works. Um, it's because it, I think at its core, it's it's about a bunch of outcasts finding each other, becoming a family, and it just works that way. And but it's still funny. It has a personality. It doesn't feel tired. And I think it's good that Guardians succeeded as well as it did because I think it told Marvel if you give a if you launch a new character or a new franchise within the MCU. And the director has a vision and a voice. That doesn't necessarily mean that's bad. You know, this whole movie by committee and getting TV directors like that works for some of the movies. But I'll put it this way. I don't I think if James Gunn is not successful with Guardians of the Galaxy, I don't think you get Ryan Coogler directing Black Panther. No, I think they stick with TV directors or, you know, plucking indie directors out of obscurity and kind of handling everything else themselves. Right. Um but I think you get the nail on the head. I think that uh, I think it's important to note that this film is not about a team. It's not about friends. It's about a family. These people have no one else that they go to after this. It's not like you know Peter's going home to a wife and kids. Uh, you know, obviously uh, Gamora has a sister, but they're estranged. It's about like the family dynamics, the dysfunction they're in, and them trying to work together and work through all their pain and suffering and emotions, and ultimately have fun doing it. Yeah. So. So that you can have a line like, just a bunch of Jackoffs standing <laughs> in a circle. It is funny that, like, looking at that cast list, I mean, I know Zoe Saldana was in Avatar, but she wasn't, like, in Avatar. She was performance capture. The biggest names on that list are the voice roles, Vin Diesel and Bradley Cooper. 
Like, By the way, I, I love Bradley Cooper's voice performance there. Like, I know, like, Bradley Cooper's, like, hot shit now because of A Star is Born and, and all of that, and, like, American Sniper, and, like, he is a movie star, but his voice performance as Rocket, I think, is really good. Like, it, it doesn't sound like him at all, but it's really good. No, it's terrific. It's really perfect. Um, so now let's get to another one that's going to be, you know... Anyone who's like, well, I stuck it out through Winter Soldier. Now to take a big <laughs> sip of water and hear what they have to say <laughs> about Age of Ultron, a movie we all agree isn't very good. What? Uh, yeah, I like Age of Ultron. <laughs> <laughs> so do I. Uh, we have the wrong opinions about Marvel movies. Um, yeah, that. Yeah, I guess. I guess our opinions are wrong. <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah, I mean, people really don't like this movie. I think it's so strange and weird and odd in like not in like fun ways necessarily, but in kind of spooky and disturbing ways. And that's why I like it. Yeah, it's a film that actually has a lot of like I think, you know, you kind of you go you see the Avengers and the Avengers is really triumphant. The Avengers is about six people who don't get along, who learn to work together as a team and save the world. And Avengers Age of Ultron is the world cannot be saved. (laughs) Devastation, devastation can only, annihilation can only be delayed. Nothing can be saved. Enjoy your popcorn. Not only the world cannot be saved, but you are the cause for the world's problems and struggles. Exactly. You have birthed this. Your, your desire to control and to defend and to cut danger off of the past has actually created a danger far uh, more intense than anyone could have imagined. Yeah, I mean, that's the thing. With Ultron, Ultron is a preemptive strike. Basically, Tony and Bruce try to create this artificial intelligence from an Infinity Stone that will you know, do their work for them. That will, you know, you know, peace in our time as, as Tony say, quoting Neville Chamberlain. Um, and like Chamberlain, it didn't go well for him in the end. (laughs) (laughs) No. Uh, yeah. So it's, it's a film that is a lot on its mind. And I think, you know, people go into age of Ultron again, you expect like, Oh, it's the Avengers. We're going to have some fun. It's Joss Whedon. We're going to have some fun dialogue. And I think that's still there. I think the film is still fun. Yeah, but it's very dark. I mean, you have the characters like having nightmares that given to them by Scarlet Witch. Um, you have Ultron pointing out that the Avengers don't actually improve the world; they just stop it from burning down. And you know, you have essentially that final meeting between Vision and Ultron, where they both agree that humanity is doomed. And it, it's just it's it's wild to me the the swings that this movie makes. And then it has to kind of balance it with all the other Marvel stuff that feels, it feels like Whedon, who, one of the things that stuck out to me is every time Whedon was interviewed about this movie, he sounded like he wanted to die. (laughs) He sounded so sad and exhausted and burnt out by the experience. And I think it's probably because he was making the film with one hand tied behind his back because he had a story he wanted to tell with characters that were important to him. That was like a very clear narrative in mind. And then on the other hand, it's like, yeah, but a giant thing has to fall out of the sky and you also have to do this thing with the cave if you want to do the thing with the farm. And like just these sort of compromises that aren't, they're not unsurprising. But by the same token, for a dude, if you just made a movie that made like $2 billion 
and there, people are still telling you how to do your job, I'd be a little pissed too. Yeah. Yeah, I would highly recommend if you haven't to listen to the audio commentary on the Blu-ray of this movie. Also, definitely listen to the audio commentary on Iron Man 3, where Shane Black and Drew Pierce get like super candid about all the changes they had to make. And not like against – it's not like a – you know, them bashing Marvel, but them just like – pulling back the curtain on the movie making process and, and different ideas and iterations they had in mind for that film. Uh, Age of Ultron, Whedon does the same. Whedon kind of bashes Marvel a little more. Um, essentially says like he was forced to do the cave stuff with Thor in exchange for keeping the stuff on the farm, which I really like the farm stuff. I think it really humanizes the characters. It finally does right by Hawkeye who got, <laughs> you know, screwed in the Avengers and in Thor. Um, so he finally gets like a a character arc and you finally get to have the characters kind of slow down and talk to each other. You get to see civil war between Tony and Steve. Uh, and then over here in the cave, you like, I I guess the point of that was just to like set up the idea that there are more infinity stones out there and they can do something really bad, but that was never like paid off in any future movie. It was never like, let's bring back the creatures from the cave. The cave is such a weird fucking thing. It's it's really this weird sort of like the world is in danger and Thor's like, I gotta go run an errand. <laughs> <laughs> yes. And so he like he he's like, Okay, Stellan Skarsgard, come with me. We have to go run this errand. And they go to the cave and he has a vision of the infinity stones. And that's it. Like, I mean, I don't know, like this notion that there are other infinity stones. We already knew that because of Guardians of the Galaxy. We're told there are six singularities. And I guess the only thing that matters is kind of like, well, the Avengers need to know that there are Infinity Stones. But again, that's never paid off. Like, you know, eventually the way they decided to just like, rather than being like, Tony's like, I know there are Infinity Stones. All they did was just throw Hulk back down to Earth at the beginning of Infinity War. And he's like, Thanos is coming. And they're like, who's Thanos? And then they're like, here, Benedict Wong will tell you about <laughs> the Infinity Stones. So the yeah, cave it's... had, like, Josh Whedon was right. This The cave was dumb. It served no purpose. And all it did was distract from his story when the farm stuff is actually worthwhile and tells you who these characters are. Characters that you will need to be invested in. These characters are going to be far more important in the long term than the MacGuffin of the Infinity Stones. Uh, talking about the farm stuff, I want to dig into something that's been really controversial about the film. Um, how do you feel about Natasha's I'm a monster line? Um, I, it doesn't bother me. I mean, I feel like she feel like, I think the kinship she has with, with Bruce Banner in this film is actually Whedon thinking through which character she has the most in common with. Like the thing is, is that I think when people like do online shipping and they're like, Ooh, she should be with Captain America or Ooh, she should be with Hawkeye. Like they're looking at like the chemistry and banter that the characters have had. But Whedon is trying to look at like thematically, where do these characters coming from? And she's coming from the same place as Bruce Banner, which is that these are two people who just wanted a normal life, like who basically had a normal life denied to them before act yeah. for things beyond their control. So Bruce Banner feels like he's a monster because he was just researching gamma radiation. He wasn't trying to be the Hulk. He accidentally became the Hulk. And so he has this monstrous side of him that he can't control. And Natasha was basically recruited into a program that dehumanized her. And 
made it so that her choice, like she, you know, we, we got this in Avengers where she's like, there's a lot of red in my ledger. Like she knows someone, she knows that she has done a lot of bad things. Um, and she's trying to sort of make up for it. Um, so I don't have a problem with her considering that she is a monster in her own way. I don't think, I don't think Bruce or Natasha are monsters, but I can understand why those characters would feel that way about themselves. Yeah, that's how I felt too. I mean, my read on it wasn't her saying that I can't have children, therefore I am a monster. No, that's saying... that's not what she's saying. <laughs> no, but that was that was the whole hub. Uh, that, that was the that was the yeah, thing. That's why willingly misread the film that badly. <laughs> that's why people were mad at Wheaton because it was like, oh, she's saying because she can't have children or doesn't have no, children. No, she's saying she's a monster because she murdered people. <laughs> she's yeah. a fucking assassin. What the fuck? <laughs> Uh, Do you I'm, remember I'm this? No, not really. It was I remember thing. people being mad. It's like, why is she with Bruce Banner instead of Hawkeye? I'm like, who fucking like because they have more in common. Yeah, yeah. No, I'm with you. I my read on it was that she was denied a normal life, and that she feels like she's a monster because she's been programmed to not feel, to not think, and that like them sterilizing her is just a further example of them taking her, her choices away from her and choice makes you human. Like the ability to make your own choices is what makes you human human. And by taking that choice away from her, she feels like it makes her less human. And Bruce feels the same way because he can't make the choice to, you know, not hook out. Although he's working on it in this movie. Um, But yeah, I agree. I was kind of bummed that they just kind of decided to just throw that kind of romantic thread away in uh, Infinity War. They were like, yeah, we'll just address it in a line, but we're just going to kind of move on from that. Well, it felt like to me one of those things like, oh, the fans didn't like it. So like if like the fans had been gung ho about Natasha and Bruce, then you would have been like they probably would have carried it forward. Now you can say like, well, we didn't do his job in making people gung ho about it. But I think people were kind of already like, no, she has to either be with Steve or she has to be like Hulk seems like a sort of a left field choice. But I think it's an interesting one. But people don't want things that are interesting. They want things that are comfortable. Meanwhile, I could not give less of a shit about Vision and Scarlet Witch. I just don't think they have any chemistry. I mean, they, the, the, I mean, that whole thing is together is because they are together in the comics. And yeah, unfortunately, so far in the movies, they haven't made it work yet. I think the TV show could be interesting. Sure. Um, Vision is a really fascinating character when he's done well. Um, so we'll I see. Think he's done, I think he's done well in Age of Ultron. I think his introduction is really interesting and, and intriguing. Oh, yeah. No, I think they've actually handled him pretty well in the movies. I just think that, you know... There, there. Um, I think it was Tom King wrote a book called Vision, um, More Than a Man, and it's about Vision trying to have a life with his own little Vision family, and it's just very weird and dark and sad, and it shows that like we've only sort of scratched the surface of what the movies could do with this character. Yeah, for sure. Um, yeah, I mean Scarlet Witch and Quicksilver, rest in peace, uh, are okay in this movie. I think Scarlet Witch's purpose is more to like mess up the Avengers and mess with their heads, um, which I think works well. The Quicksilver, I don't think it, I don't think it, it works as well as it could have. I think no one could have predicted that Brian Singer would do Quicksilver better than Joss Whedon, but that's kind yeah. of how that played out that year. It did, yeah, and I think also they didn't want the headache of. Be, there being two Quicksilvers. Yeah. And so they're just like, let's just kill this one. <laughs> yeah. just, um, just get him out of there. Which is fine. I, 
My honestly, my biggest complaint with Age of Ultron is that I think it's one action set piece too long. I yeah, think the, the, the the Korea set piece is too yeah too much. There's just no need for it. It just feels like an, a hat on a hat and an action beat too many in a movie that's already pretty long and dealing with like pretty heady issues. And maybe it was maybe it's there to kind of lighten the load a little bit because it gets so heavy. Um, yeah, but it just feels more like because again, they're still doing the Marvel movie by committee thing. At mm-hmm. this point, and it feels like the way Marvel makes their movies is sort of like these are our set pieces, and then you fill in the story. And they're yeah. like, "This is a set piece we've been working on, and it's going to happen in Korea because we want to film this scene in Korea." And it's gonna, you know, the bike is going to drop out of the plane, and that's going to sell some toys. Where the bike drops out of the plane, and like you got to have this in your fucking movie, and so that's why it's in the movie. And I think Spader is really great as Ultron. I think he, it's an underrated uh, villain. I think Spader's performance is good. I think the character is kind of dull. Interesting. I, I think the character, I think this character heads in an interesting direction in terms of sort of like a, a father, son, like grandfather, father, son thing where Tony is the grandfather, Ultron's the father and vision is the son, like this three generations thing. But I think most of the time Ultron, like, I think he's kind of funny and he's kind of like, the problem is, is that there's not enough shading there. Like he, it seems like he hates the Avengers because he has to hate the Avengers. Like I, his motives seem a little more nebulous and I feel like they could have been a little better defined, but instead it's like, I'm just going to make a robot army. And like, I get it why you don't like, I don't know. I never felt that there was enough tragedy to him as a character to make me really invest in what he was doing. He just felt like he's an evil robot. And I'm like, all right. And like, he's a really charming evil robot because he has good dialogue and he's being voiced by James Spader, but I don't really care about what he's doing. Mm, That's fair. I guess that's true that he's not tragic enough. There's really no, there is really no pathos to him. I don't care about him. And like, again, like you're not like, you don't need to like, not every villain needs to be Loki, but I think what makes a good villain is, is do you at least understand where they're coming from? And Hey baby, want to kill all humans? Just doesn't, <laughs> doesn't really like, I mean, that's great for Bender, but <laughs> it doesn't really work for Ultron. Everybody do the Bender. Everybody do the Bender. Mm. Uh, yeah, I think it, the, the film ends in an interesting place. I mean, obviously it's, it's setting up civil war, um, by setting up this new team of Avengers and Tony's gone and Thor flies away to do whatever. And, Hulk is missing. And then it has, is it the dumbest post credit scene they have? What the fine? I'll do it myself. Yeah. Yeah. It makes no fucking sense whatsoever. <laughs> like, by the way, Thanos, like, I don't even think like, I don't know. I don't, I think they've asked people like, what was that scene supposed to do? And they're like, I have no fucking idea. Yeah. They said, yeah, I think it was Marcus and Mephili, the screenwriters when they came on to, to write Avengers infinity war. I think, Steve actually asked him this in our big extended interview uh, on our YouTube channel. Uh, like, it, basically, this makes no sense within the continuity. And they were like, yeah, I don't know. They were like, we just kind of ignored it because it didn't really fit. And Whedon was just kind of like, I, I don't know, we had to have a Thanos something. So, because basically Marvel was saying, you know, at this point, again, Marvel had decided that Infinity War was going to be the next Avengers movie, um, if not the next two Avengers movies. And uh, I think Whedon was out he was not coming back for that <laughs> at this point but they were very clearly trying to lay some stepping stones when you learn that you don't need to do that it's explained very clearly in infinity war it's fine yeah 
Um, like, yeah, it felt like that, that scene is like, well, we have to have a, have a scene connecting to the next movie and we're not going to connect to fucking Ant-Man. So yeah, <laughs> yeah Ant-Man is like, by the way, <laughs> by the way, see Ant-Man kids, uh, <laughs> two months later. Um, yep. so yeah, it's, I, I like age of Ultron because I think it's, it's arguably the most ambitious. I, I think Marvel films are better when they're ambitious. I think. Yeah. When a Marvel film plays it safe, you get something that's still kind of fun, but also ultimately forgettable. Like, I think the Ant-Man movies are fun. Like, I don't I don't dislike them. I think they're actually kind of nice to have on in the background. Um, but they're they they lack ambition whatsoever. And I don't buy this like, ooh, the quantum quantum realm. Like, I don't think they've done anything interesting there so far. Um, whereas films like Black Panther and Age of Ultron and Guardians of the Galaxy, those are films that are, are making bigger swings. Yeah. No, I would agree with that. And I think Avengers Age of Ultron is a big swing. And even if you don't like this movie, you have to admit it's a giant swing. To set the middle of this giant Avengers sequel on a farm with the characters just sitting around a farmhouse talking to each other. I remember when it was like the final credits were released like a few days before the movie came out. And it was like, Linda Cardellini's in this movie? How? Like, who does she play? what and it was like oh yeah she's hawkeye's wife yeah i just again the the scene that always blows me away is the final conversation between vision and ultron like that 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 is like this kind of quiet contemplative discussion and of course like some people get hang up like why didn't you just hide a robot somewhere because you have to get all of them just to hide the robot like okay first off (laughs) you're missing the better intro the more interesting element of this movie which is that a higher intelligence agrees that humanity is doomed. <laughs> That's really, really difficult to wrap your head around, but it's really fascinating. And I think it's, I mean, how do you, how do you make that statement and not have your film be utterly fatalistic? I think that's kind of impressive. Yeah, no, I'd agree with that. It's, uh, yeah, I can't believe what we got away with here. And it's so different from the first Avengers movie, too. I think that's really uh, admirable. I mean, Whedon tried to shoot it differently. He wanted to be um, like he wanted to feel and look different. So he decided he would shoot coverage from a bunch of different places instead of planning out his shots. And he said ultimately ended up being a giant mistake because in the end, like it was the first shot that was always right. But I, I think that I admire the ambition. Again, as you say, ambition is what makes these movies interesting. And Whedon was like, what if I just do something really different? Right. Yeah, I, I think Age of Ultron is held up very... Like, it's a film that like I felt was kind of exhausting when I first saw it. Um, but now I, I, I feel very much on its wavelength. Yeah, agreed. So that is part two of our MCU retrospective. Uh, next time, we'll be talking Ant-Man, Captain America Civil War, Doctor Strange, Guardians of the Gal- Galaxy Volume 2, and Spider-Man Homecoming. If you want to keep up with this podcast, you should follow us on Twitter. Adam, where can we find you on Twitter? At Adam Chitwood. And you can find me at Matt Goldberg. Thanks for listening, everyone. We'll be back with you next time.